criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Hello, this is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph. Happy to have you here. have a very good interview today. I think it's one of our best that we've done. I came across an article in the International Journal of Behavioral Consultation and Therapy, 2007. A Behavior Analytic Perspective on Victimology by Carola Dillenberger. She is a professor of behavior analysis and education and director of the Center for Behavior Analysis in Queens University, Belfast. She provides some insights from her 2007 article on behavior analysis and victimology. Her own experiences living in Northern Ireland supplement this often neglected side of the impact of criminality. We find that many of the same contingencies found with victims are also in place in the learning history of perpetrators. And well, there's a video presentation on our YouTube channel of the entire interview. So among the things we cover is what is victimology as a field of study, the main differences between victims and survivors, Uh, Three key concepts, personal learning history, prevailing contingencies, and cultural contexts, and how these concepts factor in the development of victims and perpetrators. The importance of behavioral economics in the study of victims, closed versus open economies, transgenerational transmission of trauma, and some of these old ideas like the unconscious longing to be a victim, the lack of evidence to support this idea, and how a careful examination of the contingencies involved can dispel many of these mysterious explanations regarding victim behavior, as, for example, in domestic violence and other examples. Uh, Carolla's emphasis on uh, getting away from just the greater elaboration of words found in psychodynamic and psychological literature, and instead focus on the basics of behavior, such as what is the antecedent, what is the behavior now, behavior analysis as a means to deal with depression and bereavement, and the increased use of behavior analytic concepts in many fields. So I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Uh, Carola is a great speaker, and she's a great writer, and I think this is a very important topic. So let's get right to the interview. Okay, so we're here with uh, Professor Carola Dillenberger. Happy to have you. How are you this morning? Thank you very much, Timothy. I'm I'm great. I'm I'm just delighted to be here, and thanks very much for the invitation. I'm uh, hopefully be able to answer all your questions, and and we have a good conversation. Uh, you you are speaking to us all the way from Ireland. That's right, Northern Ireland. Yeah, and, and you yeah. you are what we would say is a, a full professor there. That's right. I'm a, I'm a professor at the at Queen's University in Belfast, uh-huh. and I'm presently working in the School for Social Sciences, Education, and Social Work. With a focus, my focus is on the education part, 
Um, and there we have a couple, I run a center for behavior analysis at the university. Mm-hmm. It's a number of behavior analyst staff. We're, we're a small, but very, very lively team. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a master's in ABA that is a verified course sequence, ABAI verified course sequence online. And we also have a master's in autism spectrum disorders, which is a separate course. Um, that usually gets taught on campus, but at the moment we are also gone online and it works really well. So I'm planning probably to keep it deep in both on campus and online. So mm-hmm. and we have RBT training and other open learning opportunities for mm-hmm. uh, autism training and so forth. So we've got a number of um, PhD students. Mm-hmm. Usually they're also uh, distant learning, um, full-time or part-time. Uh, our PhDs are research-based so they're not, uh, you know, you have to have some training, but it, it's not like a courses like in, in the US where you have to take courses. In our PhDs, you just get a one-to-one supervision and you do a piece of research and train to become a researcher. So that's, uh, and, and because we're all BCBAPs, as supervisors, we meet the BACB standards. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we try to meet them so that our people can then get the, the little D at the end of their BCBAs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, so you're all uh, BCBADs. Yes, um, in, the depart- in our department, yeah. Uh, so I was going to ask about that because I didn't, I mean, it's, uh, what led you to uh, the field of uh, ABA or applied behavior analysis? How did you get started in that field? Um, I, I've actually been, um, from from my very early training in, in Germany, I'm originally uh, from Germany. Mm-hmm. I came to Northern Ireland about 40 years ago, mm-hmm. but I did my first degree in Germany and we had a module called behavior modification in the 70s and early 80s. And mm-hmm. uh, and that really spoke to me uh, very loud and clear. But I wouldn't have called myself a behavior analyst in those days. That sort of like evolved over time, just with reading more and talking to more people. And uh, and my husband is a very ardent behavior analyst. So I probably picked up a lot of things from him as well mm-hmm. um, over, over the years. So we've worked together very closely on a number of different uh, projects, including websites and books and, and chapters and, and, and papers and so forth, and projects. So, um, yeah, the, the area of autism has really uh, uh, interested me for a long time as well, especially more general disability and education. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been because I'm a clinical psychologist by, by my first training. Um, it sort of goes, goes with that. And I've also done some work with adult mental health mm-hmm. in, as a behavior analyst. So, um, but the area of victims and, mm-hmm. and how to support victims and also then how to understand the whole issue of victims, that really came through my own PhD work. Um, as I said, I came from Germany um, and uh, to Northern Ireland in the late 70s. For my, my first visit here was in 79, mm-hmm. 1979. And, um, and I couldn't believe that the people in Northern Ireland were actually just ordinary people, just really nice, friendly, really, really hospitable, lovely people. Because in the news in those days, it was horrendous. You mm-hmm. would never have gone to Belfast for a visit. You, mm-hmm. you know, I just sort of happened to end up there, but mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you wouldn't go. So I was sort of asking myself, how do they do it? How do they actually become, you know, how are their nails not bitten down, <laughs> eaten down to their, to their knuckles? And how do they not all have really severe mental health problems and, mm-hmm. and depression and anxieties and all that? They were just ordinary folks, just having a, mm-hmm. just lovely... And so I got an interest in um, in that. And when I started my PhD, um, I was sort of thinking, well, as a, psycho- as a psychologist, if you want to understand a, a general issue, 
you probably a good idea to start off in the extreme, uh-huh. right? Okay. So so you can understand the extremes and then and then work your way back to to sort of like other people. So who is the one that who are the people that are most extremely affected by the troubles in Northern Ireland? And in those days, there was no data on who the people were that were being uh-huh. killed. There were people killed every day of the week, uh-huh. sometimes more than one person killed as part of the political. You know, yeah, it was the, the political deliberately murdered. Yeah, with yeah. bombs and shootings and so uh-huh. forth, and that happened every day in the news. And there was no data who these people were, but I, but just generally speaking, these people were more or less youngish men, uh-huh. not teenagers, but men twenty five to thirty five to forty five. That type of age group, and I thought, well, that type of age group very traditionally would be married men, uh-huh. right? generally speaking, and so they leave behind the widow, right, when they're dead, when they mm-hmm. die. So my focus was then on the widows. How do the widows cope with the fact that their husband had been deliberately and often horrendously killed mm-hmm. by somebody who, I mean, there were stories, horrendous stories where, uh, you know, a knock at the door, the husband opens the door, bang, 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 mm-hmm. in front of the kids, the kids are screeching. Uh, there were other stories where uh, she waves him goodbye and the car explodes. Mm-hmm. Right, horrendous. And so my PhD was on the widows of the of the uh, of, of violence in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's published as a book with with Avebury at the time, ninety one or something like that. In those days, <clears throat> nobody was touching that topic. Mm-hmm. Nobody was studying that. I did the field work in the mid eighties. Nobody was touching that topic. And uh, there were very few people looking at the children. Mm-hmm. But I just, I mean, for a PhD, you have a limited amount of, of time that you can do something. So I fo- focused on the mothers. I, I asked them about their children, but I didn't also then go and ask the children. It, just, it was an interview, stu- interview and questionnaire study. So I wasn't a strict behavior analyst in the time. I was mm-hmm. doing the traditional research methodology. But I later went back and looked at the data that I found, it was verbal reports, mm-hmm. but also observations because I did some, obviously, some notes on observations. And I looked at them as from a behavior analytic point of view. And what, what do I make of these data as a behavior analyst? And so I wrote quite a bit of, uh, quite a few papers on that. And the paper that you came across, uh, I was actually uh, then getting a grant. I was on, I had a quite a good grant on from the government to study how the victim support groups were working mm-hmm. and how effective, because obviously effective intervention to, we were now 10, 20 years later after the troubles had sort of finished in the, in the, in the you know, they, they, had, they never really finished with the Good Friday Agreement, but they kind of, the intensity had definitely reduced. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the question was, these people have, uh, I mean, I did a follow-up study after 30 years, and the, the data were very similar to the early study. Mm-hmm. The, the people had not really recovered from mm-hmm. the from their traumatic loss. And so this, the research project was then on, on how do the uh, victims groups that have set, been set up and a lot of money had been spent on them, how effective were they actually in helping these people? And... Uh, and that was a very interesting study, and the paper that you came across came from from that mm-hmm. era of of work, mm-hmm. um, where I was looking at what how do we actually understand from a behavior analytic point of view, uh, victim victimatology and survivors, and mm-hmm. the difference between victim survivors and what's the difference between the contingencies that they are exposed to, what is the difference between them and the perpetrators? Mm-hmm. Because in Northern Ireland, the perpetrators were not 
some some ogre. They were the neighbor sometimes, or mm-hmm. the, the neighbor across the divide. Mm-hmm. They were all also ordinary people that had a political agenda and mm-hmm. no other way of expressing that than well. I'm not condoning what they were doing at all, but you mm-hmm. know what I mean. They, that's how they express their political agenda and and uh, what contingencies led them to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> I came to to the topic of victimology. I mean, it's it's um, at the moment, and and then I did. We, we wanted to do some research on the transgenerational transmission of trauma because obviously we're interested in. We have these very traumatized mothers. In my case. Um, most of them did not remarry in the traditional Northern Irish fashion. They, we, we did ask them around that, but many of them did not remarry. So they were single parents of kids that were also then, you know, how did that trauma transmit across generations? Mm-hmm. And we did some work with, with drawings and, and explored that issue. And uh, it was actually really interesting how years and years later, the, these kids were still drawing uh, shootings and house fires and, mm-hmm. and like deliberate house arsons, uh-huh. arson uh, house fires, not just accidental ones. I, I was wondering they, uh, about that, about uh, w- about the traumatic injury that maybe you don't see it. Uh, if you just sat down and spoke with them, you wouldn't see signs of it, but there will be other subtle signs like drawings, their interests, other yeah. things would crop up th- to let you know that was still there. Yeah, and I think when it comes to conflict resolution, that's when you when you see it as well. When you just sit with them in a peaceful, you know, having dinner situation, mm-hmm. it's it's okay. But when they come in into conflict, they resort to, their resort to violence would be probably a lot quicker than in mm-hmm. other in, in 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 children that have not got that background. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, it was interesting. Some of the parents were talking to their children about the trauma, and some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm trying to remember the the data because it's a good few years back that we did, that we did that study, but um, the talking didn't seem to make that much of a difference. I think it was mm-hmm. more the the example, mm-hmm. and uh, and also when you're traumatized, you parent differently. You know, you're not the same parent as a parent who's not traumatized. I mean, everybody is different anyway. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, a traumatized person has so many things to deal with themselves that maybe they can't focus on on some of the children's needs to the same degree mm-hmm. or they deal with them slightly differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so parenting, being parented by a parent who is trauma- traumatized is uh, obviously affecting what kind of experiences you have as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's life like uh, in Northern Ireland now? Um, it's always... I mean, there's not not reports about people getting killed every week, mm-hmm. every day of the week. That that was in the early seventies and early eighties and and into the nineties. That is not happening mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. If somebody gets killed as a sectarian, it happens very very rarely, and it's absolutely um, you know everybody is completely aghast that mm-hmm. this should happen. But underneath the surface of that, what what looks like peace, um, is a lot of violence still happening. There's still um, Advertisements in the television, so for instance, where what they call punishment shootings are still happening, mm-hmm. where youngsters are getting taken to, you know, maybe they were involved with something that was not approved of, and they uh, they basically shoot into their kneecaps. Mm. So they're leaving these kids permanently uh, disabled, mm-hmm. um, either one leg or both legs, depending on your on your uh, offense. Mm-hmm. These things still happen. Now, not. They're not really reported mm-hmm. very much. You'd have to talk to hospital doctors to see how often that happens, but it still happens. 
intimidation still happens. People are intimidated out of their houses so that they have to move if they if they live in the wrong area. And Belfast still has what's called the peace lines, which is basically like the Berlin Wall, only not with bricks. It's corrugated iron with, with barbed wire at the top. Mm-hmm. And uh, some, some of them are bricks. And, uh, and these walls are still very prevalent. In fact, after the Good Friday Agreement, more of these were built than there were before. And they're still there. Mm-hmm. And you, as a tourist, you can do a bus trip to the peace wall. Mm. And write your name on the peace wall. They, mm-hmm. they have pencils in there. They have pens in the in the bus. <laughs> you can sign uh, "Peace and Love Forever," and and huh. you can write on the peace wall. But they st- they still stay, uh, and they can't take them down. The the violence that we're seeing now is it uh, is it politically motivated or is it more of a general uh, uh, has a criminal motivation maybe for greed or territory or things like that? Well, I think I mean one one of the big topics in this whole Brexit debate is uh, obviously the, the border in Ireland is one of the big things that has come up in the whole Brexit uh, debate. And the, the big worry is that while we have got a, the, the violence that you see is, is is very muted compared to what it was, and it's still politically motivated, but it's more just a criminal element that is in every society mm-hmm. uh, to some extent. That is shown, and, and they have a good excuse, have a better excuse than maybe in some societies. But um, and there's gang gangs and things mm-hmm. like that. That's, I mean, America knows all about that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, sadly. But um, the the danger is that through the the whole uh, Good Friday Agreement and then the the whole European Union membership, it all became much of a muchness, and the link with the south of Ireland became something that was not uh, not a friction so much anymore. It was much more a, a natural thing. I mean, there was absolutely nothing you could dr- drive down in a bus or a car, uh, drive down through the whole of Ireland from the north to the south, and you would never be stopped or anything like that at all. You wouldn't even know that there was a border. The only the only thing that you knew that you're now not in Southern Ireland is because they work in kilometres and we work in miles. Uh-huh. So the road uh-huh. signs were different. Uh-huh. And their road signs are bilingual, English and Irish, uh-huh. and ours are not. Uh-huh. So the North they're not, or not all of them. There are areas that are bilingual, but not all of them. So the only way that would have been the only way you would have known. Oh yeah, right. We're now in the south because I think the the, the color of the motorway sign is green, and because it's blue, or the other way around. I can't even remember. But you know that type of thing. Absolutely nothing to do with border controls or anything like that. And of course, that now has to change with with Brexit because the, Southern Ireland is in the EU and we are not. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this this issue, so everybody is really worried that that would uh, reignite the tensions, mm-hmm. um, and and certainly has already focused the minds of of those that that would have, you know, where things had mellowed down, it has heightened. It definitely has heightened the tensions in that area mm-hmm. completely. And uh, and so um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that. That's yeah, not our topic today. But yeah, we can that, talk about that for a long time. <laughs> there's still there's still some tension. That's very interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the tension is there, and it's. I don't know how many generations it will take. That's where the, yeah. tran- the trans- generational transmission is interesting because it could take. Um, it, I don't know how many generations it takes. Um, I mean, our children, because they're sort of brought up with. My husband is from Northern Ireland, so they're um, they're sort of like fairly open-minded, and they're they're not really involved with any mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. But we're also living in a rural area, mm-hmm. very rural, and. Uh, Compared to city kids, you know, where the parents are still living in segregated, there's still segregated communities, you mm-hmm. know, very much so. Not not in the rural areas so much, but in the um, 
in the in the urban areas, uh, you, you have your Protestant and your Catholic areas, and there's mm-hmm. the peace ones in between them. Mm. So that that helped inspire you, you wrote a behavior analytic perspective on victimology in 2007. How would for those maybe that haven't heard of that field, how would you define victimology? Well, it was actually quite interesting because I hadn't heard of that field either until mm-hmm. until I heard of it. Um, and it really is uh, the the study that that um, the study around um, why certain people are victims of crime and how mm-hmm. lifestyles affect the ch- chances that a certain person will fall a victim of a crime. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just um, looking at the at the official definition here. Um, it, it covers a whole range of dif- disciplines, and that's why I was really interested in because I mean, sociology, psychology, criminal justice, and so forth, law, and so forth have have looked at this, and uh, and behavior analysts hadn't really looked at it so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was looking at the violent bereavement from a beha- bereavement per se from a behavior analytic point of view with the widows in my PhD studies, this was like uh, thirty years ago. Um, I actually published, I, I submitted a paper to a journal and the reviewers were saying, you cannot study something as complex as bereavement from a behavior analytic point of view and turn the paper down. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, to me, that's that's just like a red flag to a bull when somebody tells me I can't study a certain topic because behavior is behavior is behavior. We don't never, we, we, we never don't behave. Mm-hmm. We always behave. So bereavement is behavior. It's just if you, uh, it's a summary label for a whole range of behaviors, and I think mm-hmm. being a victim is the same. Vic- mm-hmm. Being a victim of uh, victimatology is a summary label for a whole range of things. Yeah, it, and, if we can study verbal behavior, we can study all behavior. Yeah, yeah, and when we d- define behavior as behavior analysts, we we define behavior as everything, uh, the the interaction of an organism with the environment, which includes every everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Public behavior and private inners mm-hmm. and inner behaviors, and uh, and that's why we are we are not using the inner behaviors to explain public behaviors because we see them as behaviors, mm-hmm. and therefore they require explaining themselves. So, um, victimatology is a study of pe- people who hurt others and and people who are hurt mm-hmm. by others. So that it sort of like covers not only the victims but also the perpetrators, which I think was was interesting mm-hmm. because it gives us a a view because if we are, want to stop violence we need to we need to work from both angles don't mm-hmm. we yeah um be, uh, i mean there are some theories that that lay the blame pretty much on the victim that they're sort of like they're not they're asking for it but they're they're, ma- they're showing behaviors that, that that show that they're vulnerable mm-hmm. and when you have somebody else who is likely to be a perpetrator they, they pick on those kind of people that have mm-hmm. those behaviors we know it from child sex abuse mm-hmm. that uh, that the the vulnerability factors to becoming a victim are very are pretty identified in terms of unstable childhoods, uh, broken families, poverty, all those kind of lack of education, those kind of things make you more likely to become a victim. But that does not excuse any perpetrator actually making you into a victim. Right. Well, <laughs> if I could ask you, so theoretically, we could have less criminal behavior if we have fewer people that are uh, prone to be victims by their own, by the contingencies in their own lives. Is, is yeah. that, 
Yeah. Uh, and the, the very interesting point is uh, that actually the contingencies that make you into a perpetrator or the, that lead to be, be perpetrator behavior are very, very similar. Uh-huh. They are also deprivation, broken childhoods, uh, poverty, unemployment, the, the same sort of... Uh, the same sort of, um, and of course, addiction as well. A lot of uh, criminal behavior is based in, in addictions and, and, and the needing the money for, for to, to fulfill their addictions. But addiction behavior is linked to the same uh, contingencies. So if you have a, a satisfying job, a happy family, and everything is going well, the chances of you becoming a perpetrator or uh, an addict or a, a, a victim are actually lower. Mm-hmm. I mean... Maybe maybe victim. It's it's difficult because you don't want to put victims as a. You're not becoming a victim because of how you behave in some sense, but but certain people are more easily picked on, mm-hmm. especially when it comes. To, well, we know that from child sex abuse that the, that these kids, if you have a very balanced kid and the perpetrator is trying to uh, groom them for sex abuse, they would they they would very quickly uh, see that this child can't be groomed because mm-hmm. they're they're solid you know they, mm-hmm. they have good attachment they 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 have a good um you know they they have they know their own boundaries and they mm-hmm. they're not going to be um touched like the the way a perpetrator would groom a child you know in sex abuse they 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 the perpetrator doesn't just abuse the child mm-hmm. they groom the child mm-hmm. they they maybe tell them a little bit of an iffy joke to start with first of all they befriend them and then they tell them a little bit of a funny joke that mm-hmm. is maybe not appropriate for that age group and then a little bit blue, maybe, and then they start brushing against them. Maybe if it's a girl, maybe the arm accidentally br- brushes against the chest, and a child that that uh, has all the it has a solid upbringing will probably respond by saying, "Hang on a minute, get off," mm-hmm. you know. Whereas a child who's more vulnerable maybe says nothing and gets mm-hmm. intimidated and gets scared, mm-hmm. and before you know it, the, the grooming can continue until it's it's actually fully fledged abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously the grooming is abuse already in itself, but do you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's actually perpetrating an, an act of, of full full uh, abuse. And so a vulnerable child is more likely to be abused in that sense because mm-hmm. they don't have the defenses, mm-hmm. the defense behaviors to look after themselves. They're not as easy a target then for for those reasons as a, as a, as a more vulnerable child is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, I mean, in a sense... <sighs> It's it's a, a lesson also for parenting, I suppose, in some sense, because there are certain behaviors that if you are able to teach your children those kinds of behaviors, then they become it's it's less likely that they're going to be abused mm-hmm. in, in that sense. And or I mean, that's just one way of one way of becoming a victim. Obviously, there's many other ways of becoming a victim. Mm-hmm. But um, as a behavior analyst, we're, t- we're always talking about contingencies and behavior and how the learning history leads you to the present circumstances and the cer- present con- day contingencies lead you to do things. And and we all know that sometimes we do really stupid things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even so, we have a solid learning history and we have all the behaviors. We still end up doing stupid things. But but by and large, it has that fun- we have that foundation of... Um, uh, you know, not being vulnerable against those things and 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 uh, approaches by an abuser. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? What, uh, what are from your paper? What are the main differences uh, between victims uh, and survivors? Do you is there a distinction there that you can elaborate on? 
Yeah, um, that was actually quite an interesting uh, point because I was always thinking of victims and that until the people in Northern Ireland, the, the widows that I was talking to, some of them said, I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. Um, and it really is about the when you, as a behavior analyst, when you start seeing the two categories as being summary labels for certain behaviors and, and the kind of behaviors that a victim would engage in publicly and privately are, are different from the kinds of behaviors that a survivor would engage in. Although they might have experienced very, very similar uh, situation of violence or whatever the, you know, whatever the, the abusive situation was, um, the way that they deal with it and the way they, uh, yeah, um, yeah, deal with it and integrate it into their day-to-day thinking and living um, would differ. And I think it's also that a, uh, a person might be a victim to start with, but over the years maybe they can rephrase. Re- phrase it i mean the cognitive psychologists talk about cognitive restructuring mm-hmm. um, and for behavior analysts that we have to translate that term but it's still um something is sparking off you thinking about uh, about your situation differently and this this something could be any kind of contingency it could be that you're meeting a new partner in life you that you or that you meet another uh, other people that have had the same experience mm-hmm. or similar experiences i remember talking to uh, working with a mother who had lost a son. And uh, we were actually working with her because we were very concerned of the uh, for the younger daughter. And the younger daughter had been, was only one year old when the son, who was 16 at the time, was killed in a car crash. So there wasn't really a violent situation as such in, in, in a deliberate violence. It was an accidental car crash and he was killed. But the, the young girl was now older and uh, had all sorts of behavioural problems. And uh, we were working, I was trying to deal with the behavior problems of the younger daughter, of, of the young child, but also then realized that they actually stemmed from the behavior of the mother, who mm-hmm. was very restrictive and very, very overprotective mm-hmm. and for totally understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, she's lost her son, she's not going to let, she's not going to take any risk of losing another child. Mm-hmm. Absolutely understandable. But she was so overprotective that this young girl who was now, now nine at the time, couldn't move, she couldn't breathe, she couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did was I, I found a group of other mothers who had lost uh, children in suddenly and, uh, and and tragically and paired her with uh, with another mother and the two women were, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't party to their meetings, but I knew that they, uh, she she had this event where, where she could meet another mother who also lost a 16-year-old under tragic circumstances, but had dealt with it differently. Mm-hmm. So while the mother that I was working with would have seen herself as a victim, uh, the other mother had, had gotten to a place where she saw herself as a survivor. Mm-hmm. And she was able to help the mother that I was working with at the time mm-hmm. to to somehow come to that point herself eight years later, mm-hmm. that she said it happened, it was tragic, it was terrible, terrible, mm-hmm. terrible. But you know, we now need to look at a young girl and we need to help her become, you know, grow up and, and, and mm-hmm. in a healthy way mm-hmm. and not, not as restricted because, I mean, that restriction was just horrendous. The child couldn't, mm-hmm. couldn't do anything, you know. But, and uh, so, so I think it's, it's an, a life event that maybe happens. Um, maybe some people can do that on their own because they have the foundations in their behaviors and their upbringing mm-hmm. and their contingencies, their learning history. That, that will lead them automatically, not automatically, but will lead them from a victim to a survivor without anybody else mm-hmm. again. But other people might be able, with a, with a life event such as meeting somebody um, or some other life event, maybe another horrendous incident that says, right, I've had enough of this, I'm going to mm-hmm. really make 
like I know some people like that have had a heart attack, uh, their life changes completely because they're saying, right, it could happen again tomorrow. I could be gone tomorrow. I'm going to spend all my money. I'm going to go on all the holidays. I'm going to do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not recklessly, but I'm not going to save money and watch this and that and the other and try to be careful. I'm just going to live my life to the full. Mm-hmm. And so there could be incidents like that, that that could change somebody from a victim to a survivor. Uh, well, in like in that example that you gave, if the young girl, if the daughter, as she was so restricted, let's say she ran away from home, mm-hmm. and it was yeah. uh, it was uh, not as traumatic as the event, she, but it was enough that uh, you would see the the opposing um, side of that problem, and that may change her into more of the mother into more of a survivor at that point. Yeah, yeah, or, or I mean, there's there's also a. Um, a really interesting phenomenon when it comes to bereavement and grief and victimization is is a delayed grief. Mm-hmm. It's it's experienced often whenever um, I was coming across that in my research. When when say for instance a, a a woman is married to a soldier and the soldier goes out into the field and it's very very dangerous. Lots of people get killed, and she's at home with the kids and she is arranging her life, half obviously fearing but also half expecting that he may not return. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, that she's already grieving, although he's not dead, but he could be dying, and it's it's pretty likely that he does. So she's making her life already. You know, she's standing her own ground, looking after the kid. And when he then comes back, and he didn't die, and he comes back, uh, it's actually a phenomenon is that very often that marriage is doomed. Mm-hmm. It's very very interesting that that because she's already got. So, I mean, she's probably in in the first instance delighted that he didn't die and and delighted to have him back. But ultimately, uh, where does he fit in? Mm -hmm. She can cope. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She's been a single mother for these two kids or three kids or whatever, coping just fine. Uh, Obviously, not just fine, but you know what I mean? She's been Mm -hmm. able to do it. And he comes in and he wants to be the man in the family again. Mm-hmm. And she says, hang on, I've been doing this without you. What are you mm-hmm. doing here? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a very complicated, mm-hmm. uh, the whole, whole issue. And the other issue is also when, when a couple loses a child mm-hmm. and that trauma of losing a child, often the, the marriages also don't survive that. Um, and that to me was mm-hmm. a very interesting phenomena because it's so sad. Mm-hmm. So sad when, when when a couple loses a child. I mean, it must be just the most horrendous thing anybody can experience. And then, whenever you have lost somebody, you need support. Mm-hmm. And when the person support you, if, if when, whenever I mean, we all lose have lost our parents. I've lost both of my parents, and my partner, my husband, is there for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and when he lost his dad, I was there for him because I, I had lost my father in law. But not as in, not as intense as when I lost my own father. Mm-hmm. So I'm there as a support. But when you both lose a child, mm-hmm. who's going to support you? Mm-hmm. You know, because you're both in this extreme need of support. And so I, I mean, I would advise people to please go and find outside support because mm-hmm. this is just too much. You can't do it. Hey, uh, you know, I- it's, it's, they're both different people after something. The both both parents have now oh. become different people after something like that. Absolutely, absolutely, and and the the, the yeah, the, you can you can go to come. To, I mean, some people grow together really tightly after mm-hmm. this kind of experience, but sadly, many people just don't get that. You know, because it must. I don't know what it takes to actually be able to do that to grow together t- more tightly when that actually happens and. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, of course, there's other children involved as well who also need support. Yeah. 
because they've lost a sibling. So, so what, what what you've talked about kind of blends into uh, uh, the you, you had three key concepts of uh, the development of victims and perpetrators. You've actually talked about the personal learning history, the prevailing contingencies, and the cultural contexts. Um, yeah. So uh, of those three, then, so we, we probably talked a little bit about personal learning history uh, in some of what you said. So there's prevailing contingencies and cultural context. How does that fit in with the victims and perpetrators? Yeah, it's, it's really the, um, those are the three areas as a behavior analyst that when we try and explain behavior, that's the three areas we look at in the first instance. There's lots more we can look at, but these are the key ones. If you sort of like behavior analysis 101, that's where mm-hmm. you go. Prevailing, uh, learning history, prevailing contingencies and meta contingencies. Um, we've, as you say, we've talked about the, the learning history and the behaviors that you actually have when you, when you are, uh, that you've learned by the time you become a victim by the time that situation arises. And then, of course, it depends the prevailing contingencies. First of all, um, what actually happened? What actually happened in the situation where you became a victim? What what was the situation? Was it was it like the Northern Irish widows? Somebody actually deliberately killed your husband? Did you? I mean, one of the questions that I asked them was, did you see it? Mm-hmm. Or did, were you told? Right? Mm-hmm. One of the one of the women had been in hospital, and she actually saw it on the news <coughs> that a car bomb had gone off, and she saw the mm. pictures of the car, and she recognized it to be his, her husband's car. Mm. Right, that was horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was quite an interesting point: the difference between the people that were there and saw this absolutely horrendous incident happening in front of their eyes. And the people that were told. And I went back to Skinner thinking about the rule governed versus contingency shaped behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So contingency shaped behavior is really when you're in the contingencies and you're experiencing it fully, whereas the rule governed is obviously when you're told. Because in the in the assessment that I, I've used, it, just a, a traditional assessment tool, but a psychological assessment tool, and the people that had been there when their husband had got, kill, got killed scored lower in the scores than the people that were told. So in traditional way that the idea was that they had coped better with it than mm. the people that had been told. And so the idea of contingency shape versus rule governed behavior actually fitted really well because uh, we know that contingency shape behaviors are much more solid and much more uh, resistant to extinction and all those kind of things than rule governed behavior is. So it, it fitted in quite well. Um, obviously, you would wish on your worst enemy to see these things but in the longer term by the time I got to this got to ask these riddles the questions but 10 years later they actually scored lower uh-huh. in, in, the, in the scores which, which to me was quite intriguing that lower score wasn't consistent 20 or 30 years later that seemed to be I don't know what went on there but that seemed to be a slight different difference but of course you're, you're talking about post-traumatic stress and all those kind of things as well but uh, so what actually happened when the traumatic incident happened? Mm-hmm. You know, where you, um, like in, in the in the research I did with the widows in Northern Ireland, that, that was the situation, but it, it really depends on the circumstance. One other interesting point was um, I asked them retrospectively about the happiness in their marriage, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a dodgy question, but mm-hmm. but it was still interesting. You know, I asked them, were you, did you think you were really happy or were you sort of like, yeah, okay, or were there, was it really a complicated marriage? Mm-hmm. 
and the people that were um, really happily married, you'd sort of think like they missed their husband the most, mm-hmm. but they actually scored lower in the scores as well. I mean, they all scored way above average, mm-hmm. but they, relatively speaking to the people that had had a conflicted marriage, they, they seemed to find it even more difficult to deal with the loss of mm-hmm. the husband because they never got a chance to mm-hmm. resolve any of those conflicts. Mm-hmm. That's... That's not behavior analytic anymore. <laughs> I was talking about that, but, but it does make sense to 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 have a situation, the present circumstances, where there are conflicts to be resolved, and mm-hmm. they didn't get resolved because the husband is now dead. They can't mm-hmm. do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, that that the people that you sort of expect to miss the husband more because they had a happy marriage, I suppose, in in a non-behavioral way, they can look back and sort of say, well, you know, at least we've had those those happy years. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's where the the actual circumstance of what happened makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Right. And then cultural, cultural contingency, meta contingencies are obviously also very important because in the Northern Ireland situation, by the time I got to ask or speak to these widows, we were talking about eighty five, eighty six. The troubles had started in nineteen sixty nine. So mm-hmm. the, the the incidence of people dying had that that had become the norm in mm-hmm. the news. Right, there were people dying every day, getting mm-hmm. killed, not dying natural causes. There were people getting killed, and five or six days of the week, there was in the news report somebody had got killed in the troubles. Mm-hmm. Right, now the total number of people killed was just over three three thousand six hundred in the all of those years. So looking back now on COVID and uh, the, the 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 towers in, in New York and. That doesn't seem that many, but it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And mm-hmm. if it's constant, one or two people killed in the troubles every single day. I was going to say the, the ongoing nature of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, then, then once the TV has got a picture of your loved one who got killed, they use that over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so you're sitting here watching the news and something happened, da, 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 and the next thing, your husband appears on the screen. Mm-hmm. So you're never allowed to actually somehow you know get that sorted out in your head um some you know do you know what i mean because the stimuli are presented to you at all times but then the the, the cultural contingency of that happening and then actually your husband does get killed he is actually now going to be one of those pictures that appears again and again yeah. it's very different when it happens now in the cultural contingencies that we're experiencing now in northern ireland if somebody gets killed as part of the political Motivate mm-hmm. is, is a political motivation behind a, a, a killing. Um, that person is out of totally out of the blue. It's completely like everybody's just stunned. Mm-hmm. In the mid eighties, people were not stunned. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were stunned if there were eight people killed at the same time. That happened a couple, eight or nine people. There was a couple of incidents where, like, a lot of people were killed. That was sort of still. People were saying, "Oh my God, what happened there?" Mm-hmm. But if one person, sometimes that wasn't even reported in the news. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. was just what happened every day. Yeah. Yeah, nowadays uh, the the small mass murders don't make big news. You have to have large yeah. numbers of killings. Yeah. Yeah. Large groups of people are killed. That that becomes when when it, I think it used to be just three or four people. It was big news. It was a horrible event. But now, uh, you know, something it's has terrible, shifted. isn't it? Yeah, it's terrible. It's it's like it like the, the murders were were. Uh, I don't know. Murdering was reinforced at the top of the extinction burst. Yeah, and you just yeah, have to yeah. have to kill more people before you get in the news. This is terrible. It's yeah. really, really bad. I keep thinking, why do they even report? Well, of course they have to report 
those kinds of things. But one at one one of the incidents, I can't remember when it was, the, there was a big drive not to ever mention the name of the person who committed the mm-hmm. offense. Mm-hmm. It was said, like, do not mention his name. Yeah. It was a hit. Do not mention his name ever. Mention all the names of the victims, of the people that were killed. Mention all of their names, but do not mention, do not show his pictures, do not anything. Yeah. Completely blank him out. And I think that would make sense. Because yeah. yeah, yeah. we know somebody did it. We don't need to know who that was. We could... Because yeah. that publicity is um, it's reinforcing. Yeah, mm-hmm. ABAI had a, they had a couple conference uh, discussions on that about going to the media about how they should handle these cases, and yeah. they gave that yeah. same kind of stop, you know, putting their pictures up there, their life story, and all that kind of thing, so that it would not be reinforcing for the next case that yeah. would come along. Yeah. Uh, uh, and well, and this, all the copycat stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the copycat effect. So th- this is interesting. How are behavioral economics important in the study of victims? Uh, can you speak a little bit about the open and closed economy and uh, how does that distinction matter? Yeah, um, I'm just trying to, uh, yeah, let me see. Um, I suppose that it really depends on uh, the availability of of the of the reinforcers for for it fits in with what we've just talked about, mm-hmm. um, uh, because if if the reinforcers like like this is the reinforcers for the perpetrators now, mm-hmm. and we're talking about that if they are available uh, like a news report like publicity at all times, then um, it might it might actually happen more often. Whereas um, Maybe, maybe if the uh, reinforcers are not available, as, as we've just said, you know, if, if they are becoming um, not named, the pictures are not in the in newspaper, whereas nobody really wants to know about them, um, then then it becomes less reinforcing. I mean, it's it's a difficult one because <clears throat> I think it's not just uh, it, it takes us would, would take us back to the prevailing contingencies really, whereas think that some of the perpetrators it's really more in their learning history mm-hmm. that they that they explanationalize uh, the prevailing contingencies okay they they offer the opportunity to perpetrate that act and oftentimes that's obviously planned but um i think ultimately their uh, the reason for their behavior is more in their in their learning history mm-hmm. and uh, whether they have had those vulnerability factors that that are making people more likely to um to become to, to become a perpetrator or a victim. So you you had written the uh, the open economies uh, are those where the reinforcers are available at all times uh, during the experimental mm-hmm. situation as well as outside the experiment. While in closed economies, the reinforcer is only available during the experimental situation, and so that experimental results. Uh, show that of this differentiation show that behavior in open economies is uh, weaker, uh, more flexible, and less resistant to change than behavior in a closed economies that is usually strong, relatively inflexible, and resistant to change. So those two, those two types of economies change the flexibility of the behavior? Yeah, and, and I think the resistance to change as well, because, I mean, ultimately... Um, as a behavior analyst, we believe in that people people's behavior can can be changed if you expose people to the right contingencies, to the right learning experiences. We hope that that people can change, and uh, and, and that's 
I think that's an important question. Can a perpetrator of violence uh, change? Can they can they uh, be brought to a point where they see that their behavior is not uh, not really getting them uh, the results, and that's um, and that there are better ways to get the results uh, that than than um, hurting other people. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of like it gets us a little bit to the to the whole smacking debate as well. We've done some work on the on the smacking debate where. Um, you know, like the people sort of say, no, you need to smack kids to show them what's right and wrong. But that's violence towards children, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's perpetrating violence uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a child that, like a big, strong adult smacking a child is just not really fair and right. And, and the point would be to, to teach people that there are other ways and better ways that uh, if you don't want to smack a child, that doesn't mean to say that you don't want them to uh, stick to rules and, 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 and follow instructions, but there are better ways to teach them that. And I think uh, the, this distinction between open and closed economies, it's a little bit um, difficult to, to implement in, in, the, uh, in, in, in real life. But as you say, ABI is trying to get uh, speaking to, to media, for instance, because I think they have a, a big role to play mm-hmm. in, in whether this is an open or closed economy for perpetrators that are looking for, you know, I'm sure not every perpetrator is looking for publicity, mm-hmm. but they're something. They're, you know, they're, people perpetrate an act of violence for something. Uh, the problem is that if it's, if it's just to get money, say it's a theft, and they knock somebody out to, to thieve and to steal the money, the, the immediacy of that re- reinforcer is a problem, really, because in that particular circumstance, because they get the money and run. They have the money now. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, even if they get caught later on by that stage, they have already, um, first of all, they've got the money. And second, they probably have purchased whatever they wanted to purchase with that money, be it drugs or a drink mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe a week later, if they get caught, and most oftentimes probably they don't, but if they do get caught, by that stage, it's already the reinforcers are already there and, and has reinforced that behavior. So the chances of them, um, even if they lose their freedom for uh, and, uh, for some time, that that immediacy, I mean, it's, it sort of brings us back to this uh, this whole question of the skills of, of working with delayed reinforcers as well, doesn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, we know a lot about that, and we should teach kids to be able to to stick it out and. And, uh, and wait for a reinforcer and be able to de- to respond appropriately to delayed reinforcement. We know that young kids uh, can't do that very well, so it's something that you need to learn over a lifetime. Um, you know, those experiments where they give them one sweet now or two sweets later. Yeah. Marshmallow um, fest, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, we know that, you know, younger kids, they take the one sweet now, and, and then some kids always, all their life, take the one sweet now, uh, even as adults. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is a skill that that would be a target behavior, I think, for, for child rearing to, to teach kids, like, sometimes it's a good idea to just wait and, and you know, save up. Like, um, you know, we, we did sort of like with, gave the kids quite early, gave them a tiny little bit of pocket money, but also showed them how to save the pocket money for a bigger mm-hmm. thing that they wanted to, mm-hmm. to you know, and, and teaching them to save money to, to wait. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes having siblings is great for, we had, we had twins. They learned waiting very, very early on because <laughs> you can only change one nappy at a time. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Uh, so, so we're teaching the children, uh, teaching them the skill of, uh, being able to tolerate delays yeah, as, as opposed yeah. to the, the smacking or immediate punishment for a bad behavior that is always reactive. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, to teach kids how to behave well, I mean, there, there are so many behavioral methods we can we can use um, uh-huh. from, from uh, all the differential reinforcement stuff from, right to just reinforcing the... I mean, as, as in the, the very first thing that you say to parent in parent training, you say, catch them being good. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's that's, that's sort of like, you can teach them by catching them being good. They can't be good and bad at the same time. Bad, mm-hmm. I meaning yeah. yeah, mm-hmm. unwanted behavior. Um, you know they can't they can't do the both of them at the same time. Teach them the good behaviors that you want them to be engage in. And um, <laughs> I remember a friend of mine wanted to have her daughter being sort of really free and easy. And uh, they had a game playing, and they were sitting. The two of them with a very very small child. They were sitting in the car. Says you can use any word you want. You can use all the. And then she started lit, a whole litany of of curse words. And the wee two year old was just copying her and she later wondered why her child used curse words like duh yeah you know if you don't yeah. want a child to learn behaviors don't teach them yeah <laughs> that's uh yeah, straight out imitated you so uh, yeah yeah absolutely and i mean if you, you know it's like like anything else if you don't want a behavior don't teach it in the first place yeah. and and teach alternatives better alternatives teach teach uh, and i think the delay of reinforcement is is for our discussion on victims and perpetrators is a is an important one because mm. uh, that's one of the skills that I think perpetrators are often lacking. Yeah. Well, so we're, yeah. since we mentioned uh, like the open economic system, I was just thinking of the, the what we would think of as the random crime in large cities that you can easily, the anonymity of it, you can commit a mugging or a theft and then get away. And then when you have more and more people doing that, there's a lot of that going on. It's a lot of easy reinforcement uh yeah. especially if you need the money or whatever or you're you have an establishing operation there's there's a lot of reinforcement that's easily uh it's easy to come by in that environment yeah yeah and and uh and, and the copycat as well then and, and mm-hmm. the anonymity and the immediacy of the reinforcer that you get the money immediately or you you whatever you whatever you're stealing i mean even shoplifting you know you, you walk out of the shop and you have the item immediately there um um, and and uh, I suppose, uh, in a sense, that's more likely where there's, where's crowded places. Um, there's also the temptation in, in, in inner cities where shops are, you know, uh-huh. available. If you're living out in the country like we do, we have we have fields and cows. There's uh-huh. very little you can steal. Um, you know, so um, <coughs> it's 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 probably for for pickpocket, we would be in a much there would be much less opportunities in a in a rural area than there would be in in a in a larger and you've also got in a larger city and you've also got the community ties where uh, where there's more control over your behavior in in rural areas than than there mm-hmm. would be in urban areas because mm-hmm. everybody knows everybody else mm-hmm. and if you if you commit a crime in a rural area somebody's bound to know you mm-hmm. you know your face it- is is known and and you somebody will be able to say, oh, I know that person, that's so-and-so's son, or that's such-and-such a cousin. It's much more closed in that sense, because uh, um, if there's somebody from outside the community there, uh, that in itself becomes recognized. It's like, oh, I've never seen him before. Yeah. So if you're going to try and do something there, you don't have that anonymity anymore. Yeah, and in the the inner city, Mm -hmm. you you don't even know your own neighbors oftentimes in the top block. You know, it's, it's... um, the question is really then, as a behavior analyst, what um, you know, what can we do to to um, 
prevent these perpetrators and what can we do to support uh, victims to become survivors and later on I suppose once once you've been victimized and, and even if you become a survivor that's an experience that you can't take away that's part of your learning history now mm-hmm. that's going to stay uh, but how do you deal with it? Um, one, one of the concepts I came across, and again, it, it, it's a concept not from the behavioral literature, but from the non-behavioral literature, and it's called, um, uh, Jesus, I had it a minute ago. <laughs> um, it's it's adversarial growth, mm-hmm. adversarial growth, uh, which is, I think is a really interesting concept because it means that in this in the face of, uh, of, of, of a difficult situation, uh, be it a, a, an abusive situation or where you become a victim, you actually grow. Mm-hmm. It probably takes a longer time. It doesn't happen immediately. But people that have had difficult experiences uh, have grown. Like, like I know a, a colleague who's who lost a child and tragically, tragically lost a child and is grieving heavily about this, but has grown to develop a, a system where they're now helping other children in similar mm-hmm. situations. Or parents who fundraise a child died with cancer, and they now become big fundraisers for childhood cancers. You know, they're they're making. Uh, the best out of a terrible situation, but they're actually growing in, as people. They're they're uh, they're learning, and uh, and I mean, in less tragic situations, it's easier to understand if you're sort of like coming through a, a divorce, and your second marriage then becomes particularly happy because you know all the, you've made all the mistakes, mm-hmm. you've grown as a person, uh, you maybe become a little bit more flexible and a little mm-hmm. bit more forgiving uh, mm-hmm. the little niggly things don't niggle you anymore because mm-hmm. you're something that's unimportant the big things matter so you're growing as a person through an adversarial through, through a bad situation and i think that's quite an interesting topic because uh, as behavior analysts it's one of those I, I quite like those those topics that makes a lot of sense but how does a behavior analyst analyze that because mm-hmm. this is human behavior mm-hmm. where does where does that fit in and motivating operations always help a lot, long way to 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 sort of whenever there's a big switch in something you sort of thinking what was the motivating operation that made made you from a victim to a survivor to somebody who's actually grown through the uh, yeah not adversarial but through the, the negative experience and um, and can we actually uh facilitate those kind of motivating operations for people that haven't done that journey, haven't come through that journey. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what is the journey that people go through? That, that What is the learning history that brings people from this A to B? And what can we learn to help other people who are not, who are finding it more difficult to make that journey? Are there other lessons to be learned? Are there mm-hmm. contingencies that can be arranged? And um, one of the things in my thinking about the uh, the bereavement and um, the, the extinction burst that happens with bereavement, uh, especially with the widows, um, when when your husband dies, um, all the behaviours that he would have reinforced for the widow um, are not going to be reinforced anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. he's not there to do it. So his responses would have reinforced certain behaviours and they're not there anymore. So the... Uh, and that, so you go through an extent, you see an extinction burst, and that's what where Murray Parks and people like that talk about the bereavement uh, uh-huh. stages of bereavement and stuff like that. We look at that as an extinction burst, go through that. And the question is really, and and, and then the behaviors fade, the ones that are not reinforced anymore, they, they obviously fade out. Uh, and then there's new behaviors come in that are being reinforced by other people, by other people's responses. And the question is really, should we? 
do anything to help somebody over this extinction burst? Should we try and make that quicker? Or should we just let it run its path? Because if somebody then gets, if behaviors get reinforced at the top of that extinction burst, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So should, is there, is there, are there methods that we should try and help somebody who's bereaved and who is a victim through that extinction burst more quickly? Or should we just let it run? I mean, not that we have the power over deciding that, but just theoretically speaking, um, because if we make it too short, that's not good. We can't rush grief mm-hmm. because that's basically what you would talk about. You, the, there is a time aspect to this. Uh, but on the other hand, um, if it's too long, you know, like that mother I was talking about, it was eight years of a, of a, of a curve. That's, that's too long because it was affecting everything else around her. And, uh, um, yeah, it's a question I can't, I don't have the answer to that. It's just, I think it's a fascinating question whether, whether an extinction burst should be, the process of extinction should be, uh, should be just let run or should it be encouraged uh, to pass quicker? Because always, also the, then you have the spontaneous recovery, which I would have aligned with anniversaries and things like that, where all of a sudden the whole impact of the grief comes back again. Mm-hmm. Um, anniversaries, Christmas, that type of thing, you know, where, where depending on which way you're celebrating, it's maybe not Christmas, but some celebration like that, where usually all the family is together and your loved one is not there. Mm-hmm. It becomes more obvious that they're not there. So could it be said, so uh, the widow has lost someone they lost all these reinforcers. That sets up an establishing operation yeah. where they 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 need something. They they may need you know economic benefits or supports or someone to talk to, and then they start doing uh, all these other behaviors in response to that. Um, that yeah. could be <coughs> could could be destructive for them. Could be, uh, yeah. could be, absolutely. That... I mean, it's basically whenever uh, whenever somebody, uh, when a behavior is put on extinction, you find that there's a lot of replacement behaviors, a lot of variable, variability of behaviors occurs. All sorts of stuff happens, right? Because you're not necessarily immediately, I mean, we know that from symptom substitution kind of research. Uh-huh. You wouldn't have, uh, that's why we don't put behaviors on extinction without replacement behaviors uh-huh. in, in interventions. We always, we actually extinction is the last thing we'll do we, we focus in on the alternative behavior and reinforce mm-hmm. that through differential reinforcement of whatever um our focus is on what should they do not what they should not do mm-hmm. right yeah but in in bereavement that's it's not so planned right <laughs> it's just it's just these behaviors are put on extinction unplanned it just happens yeah. um uh, so so there will be these replacement behaviors, these var- this variability of behaviors that will just come out. They'll do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, and and then it depends on what of those behaviors are being picked up and and, and reinforced and which mm-hmm. ones aren't. Mm-hmm. And those ones that are picked up by, like, the environment, other people reinforcing, you know, reinforcers being provided through their environment, through other people, socially or whatever, those are the behaviors that then maintain. So a, a widow will, after the bereavement, will be a changed person not only well, people say, of course she's changed, she's a widow now, but, but behaviorally speaking, um, Beth Sulza-Azarov has some lovely work in this field when she lost her first husband. She's describing very, very nicely how, um, I can't remember the exact example now, it was 1999, a paper, in, I think it was in, was it in Java or the Behavior Analyst? I'm not sure. Um, where she describes that uh, music stopped for her. Uh, she just lost interest in music. Mm. But gardening, gardening came up. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, it was the other way. I can't remember exactly now, but but it was really interesting how she said one of the things that she used to love to do with her husband just stopped being of interest to her. She couldn't do it. It was just gone. So the effectiveness of that reinforcer, in a sense, it was an abolishing of the the death of him was his was an abolishing operation for that particular reinforcer. That just was no couldn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. It was too, the memories were too I don't know what mm-hmm. too 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 harsh. Uh, but something else came up as a reinforcing activity. That um, that replaced it, and in her case, obviously, it wasn't apparent. It was it was something that was also suitable to do, and 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 she also said something that was really interesting and quite hard to get your head around. Well, she she started dating quite quickly, mm-hmm. right? And because she saw that if she if she must have been quite young at the time, relatively young at the time, she had no interest in dating. She just made dates. Mm-hmm. Right, she says, I need to practice this behavior. It wasn't she wasn't going to go out with anybody in particular early on, but she need she realized that there were behaviors was going on different behavior were going on extinction uh, were put on extinction. Other behavior had to be shaped up, and dating and socializing mm-hmm. were these kinds of behaviors that needed to be shaped up. And she just made herself go out on dates uh, with people. Prob- I don't know exactly who. Maybe they were already acquaintances or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? She made herself, and she says at the beginning it felt all wrong and it felt all horrible and everything else. But in time, it became the behavior, and it, be- and it was reinforced. And in time, well, obviously she she met somebody else and remarried. So over time, uh, that actually as a strategy and as a behavior analyst, I just thought, oh my god, mm-hmm. you know, here's a woman who thinks behaviorally about her own bereavement. Yeah, I, I just thought that was amazing. Very insightful. Yeah, um, Abigail Kalkin did another really nice piece of work in this field mm-hmm. where she, she runs, she, I don't know if you know Abigail, Alaskan behavior analyst. She's also um, an author of novels and poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she ran, uh, she ran writing classes. And, um, and all of a sudden she found that she, she, she couldn't write and there were two other participants in her classes. And she did precision teaching. She did word counts and everything else in her, in her writing classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, and the word count just dropped. Uh, the, the data in her sheets just, oh my God, was it, where, the, where, where the counts gone? They've just gone bottomed out. The, for, for three of them, herself and two other people, the, 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 the word count just bottomed out. And, um, and she looked into it. And the three of them had suffered a bereavement. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the word count just dropped out while they were suffering, you know, immediately after the bereavement, different kinds of bereavements of whoever a relative had died. But the word count dropped out completely and only to recover very slowly eventually mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Again, a behavior analyst to um, to to uh, to think about that. And at the time when I was doing that work, Don Bear had just died. And and we were all in, in absolute shock of, of Don Bear dying. And I thought, we should all measure our behavior missing Don. And I mean, some of us knew him personally and others didn't, but he t- influenced all of us. Right. Um, and... Uh, and uh, and it was just, uh, I remember giving a paper at a conference, dedicating it to him and sort of thinking, uh, you know, we should measure our behavior now that we've lost Don. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know him personally. I'd met him uh, very, um, met him at a conference. Uh-huh. We'd had lunch together and he wrote a forward for one of our books, really insightful. And it was, there was a feeling of connection, although I didn't actually know him that well, but mm-hmm. it's a, a, a sincere feeling of loss. And uh and I uh, thought so we should all measure some behavior, something must be measurable that that, that has happened. Because mm-hmm. if we don't behavior analysts measure our own behavior in these situations, we, 
we can't ask other people to give us their data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, this be, this behavioral view, uh, it seems like it could be very enlightening on the whole idea of trauma or traumatic injury. Because so here we're talking about the the loss of some routine reinforcer or just a reinforcer of some type, and then whatever whatever efforts are made to replace that. Uh, is what we see is the the effect of the traumatic injury, and it could be good or bad things. It could be you know yeah. turning to alcohol or drugs, or uh, just escape, you know hiding away from. And we might call that depression. But it just seems like a a a a fuller view of what could be happening when we say someone has been traumatized. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. Uh, I, I mean. I, I always like to look at these as a, from a clinical psych point of view. You have all these different concepts and different different complex uh, diagnoses in in your head, and and you or you, you come across them. But I like to go back to basics when it comes to behavior analysis and sort of say before we do it in, in a parsimonious sense, if before mm-hmm. we start getting a very complicated explanation, this is where the psychodynamic. I mean, I've, I've, my college in Germany was very psychodynamic mm-hmm. and. And, and and the complex and the, the explanations were getting more and more complicated and bigger. The words became bigger and bigger and longer and longer. And this was explained by this, and mm-hmm. it became a massive big tower of big long words that that just did not make sense to me at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm thinking I want to go right back down to the bottom of it, right back down to the contingencies, and that's where the three aspects of learning history, prevailing contingencies, and cultural contingencies uh, come into it. That's our bottom line. Mm-hmm. Let's go back there. And once we once we have exhausted everything we know on that level, then let's find out that that we need to go up a higher level, and that's fine. If we need more, we need more. I'm certainly not thinking that we've discovered everything there's to be discovered about behavior. Mm-hmm. I think there's way more to be to behavior than we already mm-hmm. know, and we know quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But I reckon there's there are behavioral principles that we haven't even got dumped off. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, a while back nobody thought about derived relations. You know, now everybody talks about them. Uh, nobody was talking about functional analysis a while mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. You know, and now it's totally the run of the mill. You know, thanks to the various researchers that mm-hmm. that brought us to that point. I reckon somebody else will come up with something that we sort of said, "Oh, I never thought of that." Mm-hmm. That's good, mm-hmm. and it's purely behavioral. It's not mm-hmm. going up into some mentalistic over over. You know, mountain that we like that that the psychodynamic people would like lead us into, mm-hmm. where you sort of like talk about all sorts of things, and their concepts and their ideas are really really good. I mean, I would love a behavior analysis of transference. Wouldn't that be fun? Mm-hmm. Transference and counter transference. <laughs> yeah, that there's there's some yeah, kind counter, of op- let's do behavior analysis because it's behavior. If it if it happens, it's human. If it happens, it's human behavior. If it happens. If it, you know, if, if an organism interacts with the environment and this is the result, then we are up for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, but but I would like to start at the bottom first on the basics, back to basics. Well, on that note, then, uh, is there, uh, is, we, in your paper, you uh, talked about some traditional researchers, the idea of an unconscious longing to be a victim or uh, I think it was Wolfgang, the idea that the victim somehow fed the crime. Does that have any validity, yeah. or uh, what, what is your response to that? It makes me really, really annoyed. Yeah. 
because it really tries to excuse. It's a bit like that domestic violence thing where she was asked, well, rape. You know, she was asking for it. She was wearing a short skirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, for goodness sake. You know, if a woman can't wear a short skirt, if that's what she wants to do, that is not an excuse for anybody to do anything bad to her. You know, that that's like, a, a, the, we were talking about the vulnerabilities and the vulnerability behaviors and the, the life experiences and the contingencies that have led you to be, uh, to, to engage in behaviors that make you more vulnerable to becoming either a victim or a perpetrator. Uh, that's where my big, where I would start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, uh, because whenever those kind of other theories come up, the traditional theories, they go, usually they, they end up with some sort of mentalistic explanation. And we can't go down that road because mm-hmm. uh, that means you're, blame, you're, you're putting the blame for the victim inside the, the victim, the explaining of the behavior. You, you explain the behavior of the victim from within the victim. And that's not where the explanation lies as a behavior analyst, never. Mm-hmm. Right? The explanation is always in the contingencies. It's mm-hmm. never inside the person. What's mm-hmm. inside the person needs, needs explaining. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, um, if you want to explain what's inside the person, then you need to look at the contingencies that led to that behavior. Mm-hmm. Because if our feelings and cognitions and our desires and all the stuff that goes on side, inside of us, if that's be- defined as behavior, well, then it's a contingency that's led there. Because mm-hmm. they weren't there when we were born. Mm-hmm. The, way I, the way I look at it, I was born in Germany, right? I, I now think and dream in English. Like, I didn't. It's learned behavior. I didn't think and dream in German when I was born either. That was learned behavior. Mm-hmm. But here's a very easy, very straightforward example. How over the last 40 years, out of whatever many I've been around on this planet, the first 20 odd, I was thinking and dreaming in German, and now I'm thinking and dreaming in, in English. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly a learned behavior. Both of them are learned behaviors, mm-hmm. thinking and dreaming. Mm-hmm. Right? And had I been born in Yugoslavia, or had I been born in, I don't know, in Poland or some other place, I would think I would think agreement in that language. Yeah, you would you would follow the contingencies of that environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so a victim wanting to be a victim is is not explaining anything. It's not explaining why the perpetrator has actually done it. Mm-hmm. A, a perpetrator being uh, looking out for certain behaviors, um, vulnerable kind of behaviors. That's you know that's that's one thing. A victim behaving in in behaviors that are sending out signals that they're vulnerable does not mean to say they should be abused. Mm-hmm. They should be protected. Well, we we've had a uh, I've had a couple episodes and some guests uh, on the subject of domestic violence, and uh, that that really does bring up because I I don't. Uh, yeah, we we see these this uh, idea of well, does the person want to be in a? Do they want to be in a domestic violent situation? Uh, that that and the it can be very frustrating for family members, for friends, for the police yeah. when someone keeps going back to yeah. that situation. And sometimes the the relationship ends and they start a new one, and then that becomes a domestic violence situation. Yeah. So that I I don't uh, that unconscious longing to be a victim. I don't uh, think that is the case, but I see where that perception comes from because oh, yeah. they don't have yeah. any yeah. other explanation. They know something's going on here, but they don't have any other explanation unless they have a uh, behavioral view based on environmental contingencies. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the longing to become a victim, that's a mentalistic explanation for behavior. And so we can't go there. That's not what's explaining the behavior. We need to explain what, what, why do they have that longing? Even if, even if that longing would be um, an appropriate summary label, mm-hmm. even if it were an appropriate summary label, it, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. It would be, it would be a summary label that requires explaining. Mm-hmm. And the only way to explain it is how come they have that longing, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. right? How did they get there? Mm-hmm. They weren't born that way. Mm-hmm. It's not genetic. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a learning history mm-hmm. that got them there, mm-hmm. and and uh, how can we prevent that learning history? Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, for instance, in domestic violence, if the if the abuser abusive partner holds all the cards or has all the reinforcers, mm-hmm. right, and the person thinks that the person has no experience of getting reinforcers elsewhere, better reinforcers, better for better behaviors, um, then. You know, you, you, the example that you said where a person then maybe leaves that relationship and goes into another relationship and that is also abusive, that happens. But it also happens that they go into another relationship and it's not abusive and all of a sudden, oh my God, relationships can be like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's, a, it's a really good relationship and they're finding that there are reinforcers out there to be had that are uh, not abusive and that the abuser actually didn't hold all the cards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you if you're brought up in a in a vulnerable situation with a with a with a learning history where you may be a wee bit downbeat and you didn't really get a lot of reinforcers for the right kind of behaviors as a child, mm-hmm. maybe a bit of ne- neglect, poverty, social deprivation going on, that type of thing. Now that doesn't mean to say that that's the only way to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. There are people that are in abusive relationships and can't get out as well. Right. You know. But but you know we can. It, it really is. I suppose the nice thing about behavior analysis is that ultimately it depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. You can make generalized statements, but ultimately the proper analysis has to be on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. Your learning history, your present circumstance, your cultural contingencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't explain any behavior unless I have a really good insight of those things. Mm-hmm. And then we can talk about your learning history and what has brought you to this point where you are staying in, a, in abusive relationships, let's have a look where that came from for you. Mm-hmm. There are probably some general principles, which are some general ideas, which makes it a bit more likely. But ultimately, you may or may not have experienced those. We mm-hmm. can only talk about the, and that's what I really like about behavior analysis. It's so individually tailored. Mm-hmm. It really depends on, on on the person, and it as a clinical psych, it speaks to me as well so much because you know when you want to help people you have an entry mm-hmm. from it's, in, in a lot of the others here in, in the in the way i was brought up with the psychodynamic stuff i i ended up like making bigger and bigger words but not really knowing where to start helping this person mm-hmm. whereas if i go back and sort of say forget about all those big words let's just talk about the behavior what happened today mm-hmm. and what happened yesterday mm-hmm. and what happened what's the consequence of your behavior what was the antecedent of your behavior mm-hmm. do your abcs have a look at those, see what you can do, go right back to basics and work from there. And if you need something more complicated, we've got it. Mm-hmm. But let's start with the easy stuff first. Mm-hmm. What are the contingencies? It's an extinction curve, motivating operation, da 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 mm-hmm. So that's how we looked at the bereavement stuff. And when we were told you can't, behavior analysts can't look at bereavement, mm-hmm. we just went into it. And, and um, mm-hmm. we're not, you know, as I say, Sol Sazarov and Abigail Kalkin, there's a couple of people that did it. And it, I think it's now more and more, especially with the COVID stuff, there's more research in this area coming coming uh, along, which is mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And perhaps uh, the behavioral viewpoint uh, ends up being the 
uh, the most non-judgmental viewpoint for you looking at the yeah. individual, but it's it's not something them; it's their learning history and present contingencies is what we're really looking at. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, if if any of your listeners are interested, we've we've just finished a web page um, with a lot of this kind of stuff. It's, we call it behavior analysis a primer mm-hmm. with a behavior spelled with a U for in, for the English spelling. It's just behavioranalysis.eu.com. Um, so maybe you could put that up. Um, Mickey Keenan and Cole Edinburgh, that's uh, my husband and me. Um, we, we've, we've had this iBook as a, a long time as an iBook, and then people couldn't access it because they couldn't access iBooks. So we now have it on the free web page. And um, there's a lot of that whole thing about looking at mentalism and, and just a priming some some ideas with lots of links to existing uh, resources as well like on youtube mm-hmm. uh, but most a lot of animations have been made and a lot of explanations so that might be a nice place to start it's not focused on victimatology specifically it's behavior analysis generally mm-hmm. but i think whenever if you go back to the basics where behavior is the organism the interaction of an organism with the environment then um you, you look at it behaviorally and you, there's so much to be had mm-hmm. and the more complex the concepts are that we're looking at uh, the more interesting it gets because you know to get your head around some lovely paper somebody wrote a nice paper some years ago on intimacy mm-hmm. it's lovely i think it's behavior analyst i don't know did you see it I, i've seen um, stuff like that before on, on relationships yeah. and things yeah 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 and uh, mark mataney he's he's really good at that kind of stuff as well he's, mm-hmm. he's written some lovely stuff so um you know, we, we are right in there, and these are areas that, that uh, behavior analysis can offer a lot. But in, in other areas, we are, our stuff has already gone so far into the general knowledge base that they don't even talk about behavior analysis anymore. I mean, everybody knows about positive reinforcement, right? Right. It's, it's, well, I mean, I'm, I'm really. <laughs> I'm really into the into the ponies and the horses, and it's just they say, "Oh, I'm using R plus." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just there's nothing you know it's not even are you using R plus I'm using R plus yeah. so positive reinforcement you know mm-hmm. and, and then the question is should we be you know there's nobody talking about behavior analysis they're just saying well, yeah yeah we're, we're, we're using R plus in that training and it's, it's really interesting to see that from the behavior analyst's point of view that, and they're quite knowledgeable yeah. and you know some people are very knowledgeable in and then you have some behavior analysts who, who put their pennies worth into that right. area as well. It, it's become part of the lexicon then, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, effectively. Well, this has been great, uh, Corolla. That's really, it's really told us a lot. I, I, I like this perspective. Um, uh, if you're interested, uh, maybe we can interview you again sometime because uh, it just seems like there's so much, uh, there's so much <laughs> to this. The more we talk about it, the, the more there is to it. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd like that. That was, it was very. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was, I enjoyed that too. And uh, it's always nice to talk to somebody who is uh, interested in, you know, to other behavior analysts because there's so much anti-ABA stuff going on mm-hmm. that uh, we sometimes uh, it's just people, you know, if they if they understand ABA properly, if they understand behavior analysis properly, but there's so much misinformation out there about what what we do and what we don't do, and I'm sort of thinking, look, ask somebody who's actually trained in the science before you start judging, because yeah. you wouldn't judge yeah. you wouldn't judge any other scientists without actually understanding the science a little bit more. Yeah. I think our, yeah. our our subject matter is the problem because everybody thinks they know about behavior. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't need to study a science to yeah. know about behavior. Everybody knows about behavior. We're not misunderstood. We're just not understood at all because they don't know yeah. the general principles that we're trying to use. So. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you so much, and uh, I w- hopefully we can be in touch, and maybe we could do this again uh, in the in the near future. Okay. All the best. All, all right. right. Thank you okay. so much, and have a have a great rest of your day, Corolla. You too, Timothy. Uh, okay. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.